0: this time our little children can be dismissed for children's church their teachers will meet them their teachers will meet them back in the back I don't normally make that announcement and it's not on my cheat sheet so pardon that (laughs) okay Um, our text this morning is from 1st John chapter 2 verse 28 you can find this on page 1022 in the bibles placed on the chairs in front of you And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah, even though you went off your script. I guess it's okay, this one time. It's fine. Um, Welcome, everybody. I am Pastor Ransom. Especially welcome to our guest uh, from downtown Pres. Listen, you guys coming back from a retreat or something? All right, so a huge spiritual experience. Expecting a lot of amens from the first couple of rows. You too, Jonathan, okay? Um, hey, so thank you already. One, all right. Uh, that's one more than usual. Uh, we, the, the name of this sermon is the Parousia at the Perusia. Um, If you want to know what that means, you've got to stay awake. We're going to talk about it a little later. Uh, John is transitioning out of this topic of abiding, which we talked about last week. And he's moving into, we'll start this next week, um, speaking, writing about the connection of knowing God and the life that results from that relationship. And so we see here in verse 28... And now little children, it's kind of an outburst of concern. John has a deep fatherly love for those who follow Christ. He loves them. And he is calling them into this thing called abiding. And here he is. uh, We talked last week about um, what abiding means. It means to set up residence in the truth of God. Set up residence in the truth of God. Uh, We learned that um, we have every reason to abide. God gives us what we need, not just the word of God, but Jesus Christ on the cross. We, he gave it to us first. He, gave, he gives us also uh, the, the instructions on how to use it. And so because of those things, we don't need any other source of spiritual truth. We don't need it. We don't need it. And so what are the benefits of abiding as we sit Under the instruction of the word, we are sitting under the instruction of the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit teaches us. What better teacher could we ask for? And then, as John pointed out last week, this is the way in which we discern what is of God and what is not. And so, therefore, we avoid being deceived. We avoid deception. Here in verse 28, he's pointing these two words So that, he says, now little children abide in him so that. He's looking at the result of abiding. He's looking at something in the future. These two words, so that, bring us to an event. An event is going to take place. And whether you are abiding or not, you will experience this event one of two different ways. And so in this verse, we're going to talk about something that everyone will face and everyone will react to. And so that's why we're only doing one verse today, because it has uh, something for everyone. It has, it's a verse that has serious ramifications for everyone's eternity. So we're going to look at verse 28 this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the rest of this verse. Father in heaven, thank you for this building. Thank you for this collection of people, whether they're here in person or online, whether they're passing through or they are regular attenders, whether it's their first or 50th time, Father, I just pray that you would remove the distractions. Help us to hear your word, even remove myself as a distraction. May we hear the very words of God through the Apostle John this morning. I pray that you would sink the truth into our hearts and cause anything that's not of you to drift away on the wind. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's talk about this event. Let's talk about this event. Uh, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears. It's great to talk about the second coming of Christ for a couple of reasons. It's really good. Um, I thought you were coming up on stage. I wasn't sure what was happening. Come on up if you want. It's fine. You can, we got seats. It's all right. Um, anyway all right welcome to grace by the way all right Uh, the event the second coming of jesus christ so whether you're a christian it's a great thing to be reminded of this is something that's going to happen it's important for us and if you are searching out christianity you're not sure it's good to know that this is one of the essentials of the christian faith we believe jesus came one time at his birth as a human, God in the flesh, we believe he lived a perfect life. He, he died on the cross, he rose again, he ascended, and he promised to come back. This is an essential truth to the Christian faith. Jesus is coming back. Listen to this verse from 1 Thessalonians. This is Paul. He is talking to a church that is really scared that they've missed something. Either Jesus has already come or he's not going to come. And so he describes this moment where Jesus will return to earth to take his rightful throne. Here it is. For the Lord Him, this is 1 Thessalonians, that's hard to say apparently, 4 16 through 18. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Jesus is descending, and the image here is the, the saints who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ, they will be raised and renewed and will meet Jesus and usher him in, much like the, day, the Palm Sunday where, where Israel ushered Jesus in. We'll usher him into his kingdom. A king returning from a long absence, and we will meet him and celebrate This idea of the second coming of Christ, you can especially see it in this last verse, this last sentence of what I just read. This idea of the second coming for Christians, it's pregnant with hope. It's pregnant with hope. Look at this. He says, Encourage one another with these words. What words? That Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. This is a declaration of comfort for Christians. When we hear that Jesus is coming again, it should not be something that we're like, oh man, it should be, oh my goodness, when? For the follower of Christ, the second coming of Jesus is of utmost importance. You can look at this throughout all the letters of the New Testament, and and there's something about it in there. Let's look at two, Colossians 3. Listen to what Paul tells the Colossian church to do, and then listen to the reason that he tells them to do it. Set your minds on things that are above not things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why should we focus on heavenly things? Because Jesus is coming again. That's why. And Peter, another one of the apostles, he says it this way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How much of our hope should we put on the return of Jesus Christ? 100% of it. 100% of it, Christians. But what do we do? I know what I do. I hedge my bets. Think about it as far as relationships are concerned. I had this experience growing up. When I was single and I heard about Jesus coming back, I would say, well, just wait till I get married. And then, as a married person, I'd say, Well, Lord, just wait till we have kids. And now that we have kids, I'm like, Hey, come, Lord Jesus. Um, <laughs> but, but seriously, some people are like, Hey, Lord, I want to experience my kids growing up. I want to have grandchildren. I want to experience. Then there's this something in our life we're waiting for it to happen. And at that moment, we'll say, Okay, God, now it's time for you to come. That's not hoping fully in the return of Christ, that's hedging our bets. You can take that same idea and apply it to our careers. or or a collection of wealth, or or the experiences that we have in this life. We hedge our bets, and we don't hope fully in the return of Christ. But what are we supposed to do? Just that. So what is the encouragement of Jesus Christ coming again? Here's what it is. Whatever those who are in Christ will experience when he comes back, it's going to put all earthly joys, all earthly pleasures all earthly pursuits, whether we understand what this means or not, is going to put those things to shame. When he appears, it's not, none of it's going to matter. It's going to be, my goodness, thank you, Lord, you have come. Put your hope fully on the return of Christ. Christ. There's a reality with the return of Christ. He certainly is coming, and it's going to be a day of glorious salvation for those who believe in Jesus. But there's also something else. He's coming. He comes to judge the living and the dead. And those who are not in Christ, those who are in their sins, is going to be a different experience. And that's where the rest of the verse comes in. There are two experiences at the appearance of Christ either you will have confidence at his coming or you will shrink from him in shame. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time, these two reactions. The first one, confidence at the appearing of Christ. That is what parousia at the parousia means. So those of you waiting for that, feel free to doze off at this point. Um, Listen, you can you can find this word here means boldness. And I was thinking of Esther. We're gonna be going through Esther starting in January. I'm excited for that series. But think about this, the famous moment in Esther's life. She's married to the king of Persia. Her people, the Jewish people, the ancient Jewish Israelites are in trouble. And what must she do? She must go into the presence of the king. This is not something simple like coming into the kitchen. In, in our day and age, if your husband's at the fridge or whatever, you don't hey, what's up, Ransom? No, this is different. The king had all the power. And he, only those who he invited could come. And so Esther, in boldness, because of the connection she had to her husband, she took a chance and encouraged. She, she boldly approached the king. That's what this word means, having the courage to undertake activities that involve risk or danger. One of our elders, Joe Tyler, I'm not sure why I remember this, Joe, but... Um, Uh, You said this to me at one point. It's it's like the image of a king sitting on his throne and his child running in with their pajamas on and jumping on his lap. The king and all of his pomp and circumstance and all of his authority and all of his sovereignty, the relationship of a child is different. They come with confidence. So that's what this is describing. Either we will have that experience or if we have not abided we will shrink in shame. This word means being overcome with feelings of guilt or embarrassment, causing them to turn away. So as Jesus is returning, imagine somebody in the back of the crowd trying to sneak out the back. This idea of like, this is not for me. I don't want to be here. I realize what this is, but I'm not going to be a part of this situation. Uh, Two questions came to my mind uh, about this idea. So Jesus returns, and either people will will respond in, in confidence and joy, or they'll shrink in shame. What is the cause of these things? What is the cause of this feeling of guilt or embarrassment? I think it's important for us to describe why there, we might feel guilty in the moment of Jesus Christ returning. You see, Jesus is, is God in the flesh, and there has been this real violation on behalf of human beings towards God. We just talked about, talked about this in Sunday school. Without the idea of sin and the, and the ramifications of sin, we can't really understand God's love or who he is. And so God created the world, and how did he create it? He created it good. He invited us in to the, to the perfect relationship of the Trinity, to be a part of that, to, to, to experience that with him. And what, how did humanity respond to his invitation to relationship and peace, and purity, and, and completeness. They said, no, thank you. They responded with distrust and rebellion. They pushed it away. This is actually quite serious. This is quite serious. This is, God doesn't say, oh, that's too bad. It's just a mistake. No, this is something that God created. He created it good. He loved it. It was precious to him, and we shattered it wrongly. And in our shattering of it, God has to hold us accountable to that. This is serious. We have all violated God's law, and we continue to do so. That's the reality. One scholar whose name was Yarbrough, which made me think immediately, just to give you an insight into my mind, sounded like a surfer pirate, okay? Um, let you let that sink in for a moment. Uh, he said this fear that they feel is a fear of the guilt and terror of judgment by God. Listen, all of us at some level should fear that because we've done things that have been an affront to his holiness. We all have sinned in one way or another and we deserve that judgment. So if there's something to be afraid of, that's it. If there's a reason to shrink in shame, it's because of what we've done toward God. But the the second thing is this. Well, where does confidence come from? If we all deserve and we all should shrink in shame, where does confidence come from? This kind of reconciliation into a relationship that's been so shattered by our behavior, by the sins of mankind, this kind of, of brokenness can only be reconciled by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Because of the work of Jesus alone, it's not halfway, it's not two-thirds, Jesus alone. You see, we cannot justify ourselves in that place where we have sinned and we've shattered the relationship. We can't have anything we think or say that makes it okay. We can't repair that. We are violators only. Jesus Christ is the only Reconciler. So in Christ, here's the deal. When we're in Christ, we can actually have our sins forgiven and remember our assurance of pardon. What does God do with sins forgiven in Christ? He forgets them. I will remember your sins no more. And so when we come to God and we say, well, God, what about that thing? What about that thing I did? What about this thing I've done? If we have been forgiven, he looks at us with loving confusion. I'm not sure what you're speaking of. I love you. And so, where in this reality of a shattered relationship can confidence come from? It only occurs because of the unity of Jesus, God the Son. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, it only occurs because there's unity there. It only occurs because Jesus came, God in the flesh, and lived that perfect life. It only occurs, this kind of unity, this kind of confidence, this kind of reconciliation only occurs because Jesus, God the Son, paid for our sins with his pain. He paid for it. So that what? We might be reconciled. We might have confidence at his coming. That kind of confidence only comes because Jesus rose again in glory, his own glory, on the third day. So certainly, we all are guilty. We all, at some level, without Christ, should feel shame for our sins, But because of Christ, we have this other thing. We have confidence at his coming. I was thinking about the different reactions now to this idea of what's going to happen later, and I was thinking that possibly there are some who might be thinking, listen, I'm not guilty. I don't feel shame, and I don't need Jesus. I don't need those things. What are you talking about? Why should I shrink in shame? I have nothing to be ashamed of, and I want to say this. And I think it's important to hear John's tone of voice. Little children, he is saying these things with deep care for people's souls. John cares about the lost. John cares about the fate of people. And I want to say this in that same care every single person that has ever lived, that will ever live, that lives now, will have a face to face meeting with God. It's inevitable. As we talked about last week, it's been imminent for 2,000 years. They thought then it could be tomorrow, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be today. It's imminent. We will have a face-to-face meeting with God. And listen, I understand there's lots of quote-unquote good reasons to turn away from the church and turn away from Christ. We've, We've all experienced hurt by people who say, I'm a Christian. And then they stab you in the back. Maybe some of us have a personal sin in our life that we're just very comfortable with and we're afraid of what it looks like to let that thing go. Or maybe it's not so specific. You just think, I'm a good person. At least I'm not like that guy. Here's the answer. Here's the call of John. Abide in Christ because there's no other hope. The meeting is going to happen. Everyone's on that road. Everyone's on that path. We cannot avoid it. And and John is saying in Jesus Christ, everything is forgiven. You can have salvation. Every injustice, even that's been uh, done against us, is made right in Jesus. All pain is calmed. Famous verse, John 3.16, same author we all most of us probably know John 3:16 but it's the two verses after that I think bring some texture to this idea. So here we have John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here is the beck and call of John the author and his friend and Savior Jesus to all those who say, I'm not guilty. Why would I need this? He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is no other hope but Jesus Christ in this life. I think there's also a high probability there are those here who, although they are Christians, feel deep shame, deep-seated shame in their lives. Or there are those that don't know Christ and you're feeling like, my goodness, I feel like I've been exposed here. I I do feel like I've sinned against God. And I think that those current feelings of shame, there's two possible answers for this. First of all, you might feel shame this morning because you just don't know who Jesus is. You just don't know what he has done. And I want to tell you this morning, and I've said it several times, he has done it all for you already. He's done it. He is the savior of sinners. Not people who have their stuff together. Not people who haven't committed certain things. He came to save sinners. And so shame, this this feeling of guilt, you know what, that's actually a right feeling outside of Christ. But when you hear about what Jesus has done, the lengths he's gone to, to bring you into his kingdom, to bring you into that relationship with the Trinity, shame is something of the past. In the words of John here in this letter, when we are brought into the light, Shame is a shadow of the past. It's something we don't have to deal with anymore. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. So maybe we feel shame because we just don't know. Well, I'm saying this is what Jesus has done. Hear it and be glad. The second reason we might feel shame this morning is because we don't believe. So we know the promises of God, we know what the Bible says but we're still holding on to our guilt. This may feel like I'm heaping on more shame for a moment, but I want you to to hear the the whole thing before you judge it. Listen, a refusal to accept God's promises that he's made is just another sin, it's a sin of selfishness. It's thinking you're a special kind of sinner. So if if you want to feel like you've done something that's so grand, Jesus can't die for it, add that to the pile. Here's the reality. We cannot say, yeah, yeah, I know what God said, but I I still feel like I'm not included in that. Here's the truth. Jesus came. And what did he come for? He came for the lost, those who don't know. He came for the unworthy, those who don't think they're good enough. Those are the only kind of people Jesus died for. That's it. So if you're learning this truth for the first time, or if you feel unworthy this morning, know that Jesus Christ died for you. You see, we can't do anything enough times, we can't do it well enough to stand before God in any kind of confidence on our own. We don't have it. It's impossible. You can't do it. You've already messed it up too far to go back and undo it and redo it. You can't rebuild it. You only have Jesus Christ. And so what is the answer? Abide in him. Abide in him. Those of you who are learning this truth for the first time, get a Bible, read it, live in the truth, read about his promises and believe them. Those of you who are guilty and you're saying, no, but, but I know, but you don't know. I'm saying abide in the truth, set up residence in the truth of God and read about his promises and believe them. John is, is showing us that it's abiding in him that is going to give us the confidence at his coming. And so being in Christ is what gives us the relationship, gives us the reconciliation but abiding in the truth of Christ is what gives us the confidence to, abide, to stay in that relationship. To be excited for his coming. Um, this morning, as we approach the Lord's table, church, I think it would be ideal for myself and for us as well to regain some of the hope of Christ's return. Because it's true, we do hedge our bets. We put our hope in all kinds of things. But here we have the death and the resurrection of Christ, the promise of his return on display for us. And so this morning, uh, I love that the Lord's Supper is so many different things, but this morning we're going to treat it like a rehearsal dinner. We're going to treat it like a rehearsal dinner. There's something that's going to happen at the end of time after Christ comes, and we're going to have a party. And here's what it says in Revelation 19. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen and bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This morning, we are blessed because we're invited. We're invited. And so this morning, as we come and we eat this bread and we drink this cup, who should do that? This supper is only for sinners. It's only for people who cannot save themselves, that have done something so egregious against God that it cost the Son of God his life. And so, those who recognize that, they rely on Jesus alone. They've confessed publicly that this is true. They've been baptized. They're invited this morning to rehearse something that will be so grand and so beautiful and so complete in the end of time. Jesus tells a story in one of his gospels about a wedding feast. And, um,. They invite a bunch of people and they won't come and there's all these things that happen well they finally gather in all these people from the streets and there's this one guy he's that guy all right he's at the dinner and he refuses to wear the clothes necessary he's wearing clothes but he's not wearing the clothes that the king has provided he says no i'm good enough as i am how i am should be fine for whoever's throwing this party and the story goes that the, the king who's throwing the party says, what's going on here? Why aren't you dressed appropriately? And he says, I, I don't need it. And they throw him out. And what, and what the story is about is about the idea that we cannot come to that party. We can't come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. We can't come to Christ on our own accord, in our own way. We must only come through Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, or if you're saying to yourself, you know what? I, I know what Jesus teaches, and I know what he's done, but there's some things in my life that I just prefer. I know they're against him, but I want those, and I'm choosing those things now. The scriptures make it clear that this rehearsal is not for you at this moment. And so this morning, let's take just a few moments. Let's pray quietly to ourselves, as analyze where we're at with the Lord, and then I'll bring us back together for a prayer of blessing before we distribute the elements. Father, without exception, this is a room of people, this is a group of people watching online that are interested in themselves. We like to have things the way we want them, we have tendencies that are selfish. We make choices and think thoughts and say words that at times are aimed at only benefiting us. And so this morning we leave all those things at the cross, a place that not only symbolizes but is the very center of self sacrifice. Thank you for giving what you gave to fix what we broke to draw us in, to give us a remedy for our shame so we don't have to shrink at your second coming. We can, we can celebrate with confidence and joy. And so this morning, Lord, I pray for myself. I pray that you would restore my hope in your coming again. Make my life the result of being pregnant with hope for Jesus Christ coming and making all things new, making all wrongs right, making all sin disappear. It's beyond our imagination. And so this morning, you've given us an opportunity to bask in that just for a moment as we eat the bread and drink the cup. We remember what Christ has done. And we also remember why he did it to celebrate with his bride at the end of time. So use this supper to prepare us for that moment. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.